Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, where we center conversations on reproductive justice and activism. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Black History Month! Welcome to the very first installment of the Black Youth Sexuality mini-series. In this series, we will be discussing various topics surrounding sexuality, reproductive justice, and liberation as experienced and imagined by Black youth through a storytelling season where at least one guest speaker speaks to their lived experience. In our very first episode, we have the pleasure of learning from Caleb Strickland, a Morehouse student and ballroom member. In this episode, Caleb discusses how ballroom culture is a form of liberation and gender discovery and expression. Thank you so much to the Epping Foundation and Advocates for Youth for sponsoring the season, and let's jump right in. Hello, Caleb. Thank you for joining me for an episode of Black Feminist Rants as one of our Black youth sexuality storytellers. To start us off, can you introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and a few words about yourself and the work that you do? Hi, my name is Caleb Strickland. Pronouns are he, they, and I am a member of the ballroom community. I'm also a sociologist and a student at Morehouse College, and I do research on gender inequality, sexuality, and particularly Black queer studies. So very excited to be here today. Yes, and we're excited to have you. Um, So one thing that we like to say in the reproductive justice movement is that we all have a story to tell, and that really reminds us to center lived experience when we're organizing for liberation. So I would love if you could share a piece of your reproductive justice story with us. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Northwest Arkansas. uh, And so being from Arkansas growing up, I actually did not know a lot about reproductive justice or even about sexuality, sex, gender, all of that. Like we did not have sex ed. And at the time that I was growing up, there was actually only two Planned Parenthood clinics in the entire state. So one in Northwest Arkansas and one in Little Rock. And at the time, recently I've just gone back home, there are actually no longer any Planned Parenthoods, even though neither of them provided abortion. I believe one did for a time, but there are no Planned Parenthoods. And as you know, there have recently been a lot of abortion, uh, anti-reproductive justice bills that are targeting uh, specifically abortion. And those are in effect in Arkansas. So it is very hard, even harder than it already was to access reproductive justice. So that's something I grew up very, aware of yeah that's so it's so interesting not surprising though that you said you didn't have sex ed and now there's even less opportunity for reproductive health care with the closing of the Planned Parenthoods. Um, so did you even have like a health class or anything growing up or was it just? We had a health class, but it was not the best. The one section we did on sex ed was more of a abstinence-based program. It certainly wasn't comprehensive. It didn't cover anything about pleasure, consent, about queer bodies or anything related to that. So it was very lacking for what it was. Yeah, I went to high school in Texas and we had a like one semester health class, no sex ed. We talked more about substance abuse than anything related to like sex or pleasure. So that's terrible. <laughs> and so you mentioned in your introduction that you do a lot. You were doing research, you're a student, and you're also a part of the ballroom culture. So can you explain to us what ballroom is and how you got involved in the ballroom scene? Yes. So ballroom is a subculture originally developed by Black and Latina trans women in New York City. It is now spread to become a global phenomenon. It consists of houses and balls. So houses put on balls and balls are for houses to attend and 
they're all themed around these different categories such as performance, body, runway. And it basically is just, I consider it this cradle of liberation for Black femme queer bodies. And I got involved earlier this year. Actually, I had always been a fan, but it was more of like supporting from the sidelines, like watching, following people on social media. But uh, I met a member of the House of Juicy Couture actually at Morehouse campus, and he invited me to come to a practice. And to my surprise, it actually ended up being an induction meeting. I was not told it would be an induction meeting. And the parents of the house liked me and I was allowed to join. And ever since then, I have been KK Juicy Couture. I love that name for one. Also, you were recruited. You're a hot commodity. They're like, yeah, we, we, we need them. We need them in our house. Um, that's amazing. I didn't know that um, ball ballroom was created by Black and Latina women. Um, so that's like a great piece of history to keep at the forefront. And you talked about it as a cradle of liberation. Can you speak to how you see ballroom culture as a form of liberation? Yeah, so in ballroom, there's all these different categories. So things like executive realness, which is about selling this illusion of like saying being a person on Wall Street or someone who works in corporate America. And a lot of these people who participate in ballroom are black and brown, they are trans, they are queer, they are women, they are poor. And as a result, they have been isolated from accessing a lot of these spaces. So in ballroom, you get to, on the runway for one night, be whatever you want to be. You can be a high fashion model, you can be an executive, you can be a great dancer, you can be all of these things that society typically tells you you can't be. And you get to do it in what is a safe space, I won't say, completely safe in the sense that like there is conflict people are people like it's not some magical wonderland these are still like human beings but it is a space where there is a lot of opportunity for expression and self-discovery and i don't think you get a lot of that outside of the ballroom that's amazing and that makes me think of i like how you framed it as like a form of liberation and just being able to be yourself in a way that you couldn't necessarily be just like in normal society so what do you think of cis people entering ballroom especially since you know pose got a lot of popularity and just the wider society becoming more aware of it how do you feel like that impacts like the safe space that's meant for queer and trans people i think that cis people, firstly, there have been cis people in ballroom throughout its entire history. So there have been, especially, I want to talk about the role of cis women in ballroom. So specifically queer and lesbian women, particularly Black and Latino women, they have been disregarded in, out, throughout ballroom history and not given their due diligence. And these women have like played a major role. As we know, like lesbians were critical during things like the HIV uh, AIDS epidemic. Like they were the people working as nurses, taking care of trans and queer people. So I just like, I really don't mind at all. I feel like if you come to the culture with the intent to really learn and you know the history and you know your icons and your legends and you know that stuff, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think, because I think those people contribute a lot to the space and there's also a lot that they can get out of that space. I love that. And I love you centering lesbian women and other queer women who have supported queer and gay men as well, especially when you brought up HIV. I feel like a lot of times we forget like during the HIV crisis when men weren't able to donate blood because of the homophobic policies that we have on the books, a lot of lesbian women stepped up and donated their blood so that, you know, their brothers and their siblings could get the care that they needed. So I love that you brought that piece of solidarity into the conversation. So for my next question is, how did ballroom help you explore your gender expression? So ballroom honestly has done a lot for even the way that I perceive myself. So when I entered ballroom, I would have identified at the time as just like a cis man. I was just a queer cis man. 
but in ballroom you're really forced to kind of like step out your box so there's two types of when you talk about voguing there's two types of performance there's dramatics and then there's soft and kind and so i originally came i wanted to be dramatic i had a lot of like masculine icons and legends i looked up to but basically when i came to the house my mother was like no, I don't see it for you. She's like, there's a lady living inside of you, basically. And so, like, I started performing in heels, and then skirts became part of it. And then, like, my hair now being longer than it was mm-hmm. at the time I joined. And it just became a space where, like, I was exploring a side of myself that I don't necessarily know that I disregarded but more just that I didn't ever really bother to explore like I knew that I was fine just talking and being perceived as feminine through my speech but like actually presenting feminine really just opened my eyes to like the world of expression that I could explore. Do you think that you didn't like express yourself as feminine because there weren't opportunities to do so before or just something you never thought of? I think part of it was like there were no opportunities like I go to Morehouse so I go to a school that has like even though like people are visibly queer at Morehouse there are like unspoken rules there are like expectations for how a Morehouse man is supposed to present is supposed to look so it really took ballroom to find out that you can force those opportunities so like in Morehouse there's an expectation that you be well-dressed but well-dressed doesn't have to be you in a suit I have Morehouse siblings who come out in heels and a long like conservative skirt but they have a blade are on and it's just made me realize that you can make those opportunities anywhere to present and put them and center your feminist and like don't be afraid to even have it in masculine spaces so I think that's really what ballroom showed me I love that piece at the end embrace your feminist but also embrace it in masculine spaces as well I feel like that can be like the really tricky part so thank you for speaking to that what is something that you wish people knew about ballroom culture I really wish that people knew that it wasn't all the glitz and glamour Cause there's a lot of celebration, especially on like now TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, you see like the videos of people like dipping and like falling on their backs. And you see like these beautiful people walking face and body, but there is a long history of social justice activism in ballroom. There is a large history of organizing, of fighting back and claiming space. And I think when people just get caught up in the aesthetics and they forget the history, they forget the ACT UP movement, they forget Fight for AIDS, they forget these movements for reproductive justice, for access to better sex ed information, I think people can get a misconception of what ballroom is and they can lose like the real heart and soul of ballroom, which is taking care of people in community oriented spaces and making sure that people have access to resources when they haven't historically had them. Yeah, and you've started to touch on this already, but how has ballroom culture or how is ballroom culture connected to reproductive justice? So this is just kind of a big one. It's just about, there are a lot of medical procedures that people think of typically as like now they associate them with trans bodies, but they are related to everyone's bodies. Healthcare is healthcare regardless of who our gender is. And this can mean access to hormones and birth control. This can now mean things like there are cis women in ballroom, there are people with vaginas, there are people who need access to abortions. There are people, especially because there's ballroom all across the South and Midwest, there are people who need access to vasectomies, to hysterectomies, to all these different surgical operations, which are barred from them due to their gender identity or due to their class status, their blackness. We don't know what factors play into the discrimination they're facing in the medical sphere. So ballroom has always been really big about getting behind people and supporting them. If people need medical procedures or operations that they can't get in their state, the house can come together and fund for them to be able to travel to a different state to get the medical procedure they need, helping people to get hormones, to get access to medication. And so all those things 
are part of our reproductive justice, but I think the media and I think especially people who are out to destroy uh, reproductive justice, those people have framed these medical procedures in a way that we disassociate them from one another. And we don't think of medicine as just, this is medicine, period. We all need access to it. And we start to think of them as separate from our reproductive rights. And we think of medicine as the separate sphere. And I think that's where like ballroom really has shown me that you can overcome is like by doing these little community oriented things, taking care of people around you, you can actually get people to access a lot of rights and a lot of materials that they wouldn't have previously had access to. Yeah, that's a really great point of how we kind of think of these um, medical needs as like in these silos and not like inclusive of someone's like entire reproductive health span or just their life in general and the healthcare that they may need. So I love that you brought that up. You also said something else. Oh, I do a lot of work with self-managed abortion and some research has come out to show that trans youth specifically and trans people in general, not just specifically to youth, are more likely to self-manage their abortion than to go into a clinic. And that's probably a lot of the reasons around like gender dysphoria going into the healthcare clinic and just like the binary within healthcare. And so when we're talking about abortion rights, rights and reproductive justice, it's really important to like center that justice piece and not just like the typical reproductive rights and, you know, oh, white women need their abortions and focus on middle class people because we're seeing that the people with the most need are the people that are the most marginalized and they're going these different routes and we need to support them in these different routes as well. Yes, I love that because I think that's another thing that people don't realize is that, like you're saying, when we're having these instances where people need like access to things, but they can't get them, whether that's like medication or procedures, they start self-managing. Like there's a very big history in ballroom of people self-managing their own hormone therapy, like their own hormone replacement therapy. And those things can be dangerous if we don't have access to trained health professionals. But like you said, things like dysphoria, discrimination, those things are very real. And I think I love that you just like focus on that justice part, because like you said, people often just think about like the, oh, if white women have access, then that means that certainly everyone can just walk into the clinic and get it. And we both know like that's not really everyone's reality. So I really love that you considered that justice part. Of course. I like something you said earlier. You were talking about the house and how if someone needs an abortion out of state, the house will come together, raise the funds to send them out of state. So can you speak to the community aspect of ballroom culture as well? Yes. So community is really at the heart of ballroom, even though there's a lot of competition between houses, there's shade, there's like all the fun parts that people love, but it really is community. I got my first experience with that recently at the Atlanta AIDS walk that happened, uh, the entire Atlanta Kiki scene, which is the section of ballroom focused on the youth and training new people in the scene. All the parents basically came together and they got these big donations and supported for this Atlanta AIDS walk. And we walked all the way around Piedmont Park, this huge park here in Atlanta, walked like, I think five miles for to support. And these were things like that. I may have known were going on in the city at the time, but prior to joining ballroom, I don't think I would have had I would have felt brave enough, I feel, to go out. Because what people don't realize is that a lot of times going out, participating like in even like support of social movements that have stigmas around them can feel very like scary, especially if you're going alone, but like being in a house and being told, oh, I'm gonna go there. People I know are gonna be there. We're walking for this cause. It really just makes you, it makes you start to see that like all the little people and the little parts that go into achieving parts of justice, of getting access to resources, like all of that just seemed very lofty to me at first. Like I thought that stuff just happened at Congress, but like the ballroom community made me realize that like it happens in community, it happens on the ground, it happens in these spaces. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Can you talk a little bit about, I know you said you do some research and you're a sociologist. Can you talk about your studies and the research that you're doing? 
Yes, so my current research project uh, actually is about the ballroom scene, and it specifically looks at status, power, and influence among subcultures. And I really just wanted to have a study that centered like Black queerness and these Black queer social dynamics, because typically in sociology, everything is framed from like this white man perspective of like these white middle class people, like this is how you're supposed to interact and anything that you do otherwise is deviant. But in ballroom culture, my research has found that like there's sort of this remaking of what we call the black hood socialization. And it's like this space where the social rules are different. Like the, it's not the white man at the top, it's these black mamas, these aunties, these grandmas, these women who put in the work are at the highest level of exaltation. And so my research just kind of examines what it takes to gain status, power and influence in a ballroom scene. And basically part of that is not just what you're doing at the ball, but what you're doing outside of it. So the kids you take care of, the activism you do, the organizations that you partner with for the ball to get things like HIV testing, those types of, and like STI testing, those types of things are what really garner status for people in the ballroom. That's amazing. And I one, I love that, that whole research topic, but also how gaining status and influence and power in the ball scene, in the ballroom scene, is more about what you're doing for community and not just about what you have. And I feel like that's something that's very different from what we see in like, mainstream society like it's all about if you have enough money if you have like this title that's how you get your power and that's pretty much predicated on the oppression of other people but it seems like in the ballroom scene it's not it's the actually the antithesis of that it's how are you supporting people and not oppressing them and how are you lifting them up and that's how you gain your power influence i love that i'm learning something new this is i'm loving this whole subculture this is this is how i feel like the rest of society should reflect what is going on in the ballroom scene in terms of this power and influence Yes, I love that. I love that you're learning something about it because people people just don't know. And like, I think if more people knew that it would do a lot for people to like know that there are spaces out there where you can feel that liberation, where you can have community orientation, where like oppression, obviously it occurs in ballroom. Part of my research does look at that, like the way that cis women and lesbians have been isolated from the scene or how they've been written off in the scene. But at the parts where at its heart at the community parts where people are getting like these inspirations and people are coming together i think those things are things that like everyone could feel like they need in real life yes can you talk about how you would like to see the reproductive justice movement incorporate gender minorities um, and black queer liberation into the rj organizing principles in general yes so i think that so what i've learned at least at least in atlanta ballroom is that a lot of the people who are the leaders and houses, they work with a lot of organizations and they partner with all these organizations. But when we typically think of like these social justice nonprofits, like a lot of them are still white led, they are still led by upper middle class people. And I think that when they collaborate, what I've seen when they're willing to collaborate with black people, trans people, black women specifically, that you end up, the organization ends up benefiting a lot more from centering these people because these people are occupying multiple intersections of marginalization. So they're seeing how the system is working against people's rights in real time in a, in a, like, a variety of ways. They can say, oh, I can see like, this is how my blackness affects how my doctors treat me. This is how my poorness affects me. This is how my class, my gender, my sexuality all affects me. And I think that, this prioritization sort of of like the white suburban woman as like the woman who's most in need of reproductive justice instead of centering black and brown bodies, instead of centering trans bodies, instead of centering queer bodies, I think really lends to a disservice and like a defeat, a deviation of the point of getting reproductive justice because justice should be just, it should be applied equally to everyone. So I think really seeing organizations go out of their way to partner with people 
who are occupying those marginalizations, but not forcing the work on them, asking them for them advice, but being willing to one, pay them, and two, being willing to take their considerations without having them have to be the one that actualizes the idea could really do everyone's benefit. Yes, and heavy on the pay them and not just like having these meetings and we're just gonna take all your ideas and run with it and not give you any credit or any compensation. So that's um, a really good piece. I'm glad that you brought that up. And that's interesting how you're saying the org benefits more from the collaboration than the houses typically do because the houses are just lending so much education and knowledge to the organizations that they wouldn't have like be, been privy to because they're not in those spaces, they don't have those lived experiences. Okay, so I know we ran through these questions so quick quickly. <laughs> Did you notice that too? I was like, wait. Oh my gosh. And I, and I asked some more and then we still ran through them. Is there anything else that you wanted to speak on? Just that, okay, I guess like if there's like a last thing I wanted to say is that like people, I really want people to seek out spaces like ballroom. It does not have to be ballroom exactly, but I think making sure that like being intentional about finding community where you have people who are okay with you exploring different aspects of yourself, people who are willing to support you, not just emotionally, but financially. And I think people have this idea that like financial support has to be I pay your rent, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be you're in need of money and I give you $5 and she gives you $3 and he gives you $6. And like that money adds up. And even if it's not enough to pay off everything you have, it's still community support. So like, I really would just encourage people to find spaces. And I know it's hard, like it can be really difficult to find these, especially depending on where you are geographically, you can be so isolated because of your marginalizations, but like seeking out spaces with people who are genuinely supporting you and who want to see the best for you and who want to see justice apply to you because a lot of people are really in community with people who are okay with them being discriminated against. And I don't consider that to be real community is like, if you're willing to stand by and say like, if I let the black women in my life have to do all the work to defend themselves, if I let people talk down on them, that's not me being in community with those people. That's me essentially taking advantage of the benefits that my relationship with them gives me, but like real genuine community, being there, supporting each other, help lifting each other up. I think people should really try to seek that out instead of this sort of like hustle, get everything kind of culture where it's all about me, 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 and what I can get. It's like finding people you can support who also support you. Yes, I love that. I love the phrase, people who are invested in seeing justice applied to you specifically. I and mean, also just naming that, looking for community who can also financially support you. I feel like there's a lot of shame around that. A lot of shame about one, being poor, about needing help, about asking for help, and just like really empowering people to be like, people are poor by design. Like this is, the setup of our system. So you being poor is not something to be ashamed of. That's something our government should be ashamed of. So you asking for support should never come from a place of shame. And you should be in community with people who want to invest in you in that way. Yes, and to that point, I think even those of us then who end up with resources have to be better about not shaming people for needing help. Because I see people constantly, especially living in Atlanta, a lot of people talk about like, oh, why did you give that man $10? Like he might be spending that on drugs or alcohol. But like you said, like these things are not personal moral failings, like being poor, being suffering from addiction. Those things are not reflective of those people. And I feel like if I get that $10, even if he spends it on alcohol, he may not spend it on alcohol. He may use that to buy his meal. And I feel like, like we have to be willing to let go of the assumptions of ownership over resources when we share them with people and be willing to like lift people up and be willing to understand that they may fall back down and they may need a second helping hand, but like being willing to do that I think it's so important and like understanding that people should not be ashamed of their marginalizations. Cause like you said, those are in the system by design. Like the government is not helping these people intentionally. 
And so there's nothing wrong with seeking help in your community. Exactly. And I don't know about y'all, but when I see people who are houseless um, on the streets, they're eating like uh, Popeyes and eating meals. I don't, I see them like when you're giving them money, I'm seeing them eating full meals with drinks and everything. I, I don't know where this whole, they're going to go buy alcohol and drugs and stuff is coming from. But I also love that you brought up that people with resources need to be more proactive or not shaming people for needing resources, but also being proactive about not only asking them, but just if you know that someone's struggling, just send them $10, send them $15. If you are in a space where you have the capacity to do that and you're well off, just support people. Don't make them have to ask. If you know there's someone who does feel that type of shame or they have, you know, second guesses about um, asking for the support that they need just be that person that can support them it's something that I, I want to do more of and I want people who are in the position to do that to do more of as well yes I like that especially like not forcing people to ask for help because think about like how many times we see people in need of any type of assistance and it's like if you have the means why would you not like it costs you nothing especially for things in my view things like money which to me feel easily replaceable like i know i can go out and i can get another i can get another bag but it's like something you should mind giving that away or helping people with that definitely thank you so much this has been so fun i've really learned a lot like i've genuinely learned so much from you in this conversation and this really encourages me to just like do more research around ballroom culture in general yes please do there is so much good work out there and one i would recommend is marlon bailey writes about specifically the relationship of ballroom and activism for HIV. And I think those strategies, even though HIV is only like a facet of reproductive health or even just health in general, is like those activism strategies from people who typically don't have a lot of resources are can be applied so widely because they're specifically built by people who don't have a ton. And it shows you that like, you don't need a bunch of resources, a bunch of money. You don't need a nonprofit behind you to go out and try to make those changes. So for anyone who wants to know more about like how to organize reproductive justice, any type of like fight for inequality, you should look to the ballroom community. We've done it, we've been there. And like, it's, I mean, it's the same people who are always contributing the work. It's, it's the black and brown films. They're the ones putting in this work and they've developed these systems and we should definitely be looking to them for what to do. Yes, definitely. And I'm going to link that um, author that you mentioned in the show notes below so people can click and find some more information. But I do have a final question for you. And it's not in the interview question, so it's not going to be perfectly crafted. But how do you, I know a lot of times when we talk about our Black identity and how it intersects with other marginalized identities, and that's typically talked about um, in a negative way or in a traumatic way. But how do you feel that your Black identity and your other identities intersect in a way that brings you joy? Oh my gosh, you are, I'm literally obsessed with you. I am obsessed with this concept. So, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw and her matrix of domination theory that there is a, that there are systemic structures and policies set out that inherently make your life harder based on the different like lanes of marginalization you occupy. So I am currently theorizing and writing about something that I call the matrix of liberation. And it is my belief that the more marginalizations you occupy, the less bound you are to social norms. So if you think about I it- I love that. If you think about it, like there are definitions of like, especially like when we think of like queer movements, like disability movements and women's movements, those three specifically, the prioritization has always been white middle-class versions of those identities. So white middle-class women, white middle-class disabled people, white middle-class cis male queer people are typically who the focus is on. And when you think about that, 
because of that, they're never they're never going like systemically going to validate our identities. Like we know, and we've seen specifically with a lot of these discourses lately, how they masculinize black women and try to like say that they don't really fit the category of women. And so to that I say, because you occupy those spaces, you don't have to do all the other stuff that white middle-class women do. You get to do whatever you want because the system is already not seeing it for you. So you might as well live out whatever fantasy that you want. And I think that that is something that I really like am really obsessed with is like this matrix of liberation is like, like you said, not looking at things through a deficit perspective. Like it is not because I'm black, they won't let me do this. No, because I'm black, I get to be original. I get to be creative. I don't have to do things their way. I get to do things my way, especially the more you occupy that being black and being femme and being dark skin and being low income, you get to rewrite your own story. And I'm not like gonna say, sit here and say like, it's that easy. We know that like there are real structural barriers, but as far as like day to day, like I no longer feel bound to these standards of masculinity because I realize I'm like, wait, I'm a black, them educated like all these different facets that make up my identity is like it doesn't just have to be your marginalizations like i'm an academic i'm a creative i'm black i'm queer like those things mean i get to do whatever i want and present however i want so yes get into the matrix and liberation everyone liberate yourself from their standards you get to be you do it literally do it yes i love i love that just a uh, term matrix of liberation and i love how because it kind of highlights how we are oppressed, right? And then we try to fit into our oppressors different forms of oppression when it's like, we don't even have to fit into that. We don't have to fit into how white women are, you know, framed as like, you know, demure and, you know, you have submissive, like, why do I as a black woman want to fit myself into another form of oppression when I can be separate from that? <laughs> yes, it's so true because there literally are so many standards that are, we call them in gender studies, like these hegemonic masculinities, these hegemonic femininities. And first of all, we say in sociology that they're never achievable anyway. They're designed as ideals. So don't try, like, why would we try to live up to that standard? Like you said, like, why would you try to fit yourself into a box that you already know is not built around you? I love that, I love that. Okay, what ways do you specifically as an individual try to find joy in your identities and just in your life in general as a black young person? It sounds so repetitive because it's been the theme of this interview, but it really has been ballroom. Like that has been my creative outlet for the longest. I used to write, I used to do a lot of like literary work and I would write about like these black queer love stories that I wanted to live out. But I feel like lately it's been more being in the ballroom, like going out there, something about like going out there in heels and like as a six, five man, like not caring, like in heels. Yes. <laughs> but, a little spin into a dip like you just feel very free and you feel authentic and it feels like all these things that people have said you're not allowed to be like you're not allowed to be a tall dark-skinned boy and be feminine but you can be those things and like i think really taking the moment to realize that like even though we're taught all these lessons and we're socialized to know, to like perceive ourselves in a certain way we really do have agency and that any choice we can choose to be as feminine as we want. We can choose to celebrate that femininity. We can choose to celebrate those aspects of ourselves that people have said are negative. I think that's really what brings me that joy is like looking in that mirror before a ball and being like, oh my gosh, like little kid me would gag to see me dressed like this. But it's like, that's a good thing. Like you, like if I'm not shaking up younger me's perception of the world, then I'm not the person I wanna be.
right and just how you say you you are making younger you gag you're doing that for a young person today right now and you're giving them a vision of what the future could look like and that they don't have to be bound to these social norms so that's beautiful well thank you so much for being on this episode of black feminist rant um yeah sorry i'm gonna just close out right there <laughs> do you have any last words that you would like to share Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. I just love your perspective and just the way that you like see the world. You're just very inspirational. Oh, thank you. So are you. I, when I, I was writing notes, I don't know if you saw me looking to the side, but I've been writing notes as you've been talking like a lot. And you said you're doing that research. I don't know if that's going to be like published or whatever, but definitely follow up with us so we can see what that culminates to, because I would definitely love to read that or whatever it turns out to be. I'd love to uh, take a look at that as well. Yes, on G. You'll be the first person I'll notify. Yay, I feel special. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for tuning into this episode and for supporting Black Feminist Rants and supporting the Black Youth Sexuality series. Thank you so much to the Black Youth Storytellers for sharing your wisdom with us. I am constantly in awe at how amazing these people are. Some of them are younger than me, some of them are my contemporaries. I just have such a good time talking to them and just being in community with other young black people. And when we talk about Black History Month, we're also talking about black futures and this is the future. And if this is the future, we're in such good hands. So thank y'all so much for supporting. If you enjoyed having black youth speak about their experience or if you wanna see more black youth working on the podcast, definitely consider donating. Everyone who works with Black Feminist Rants is paid and I can only do that through donations and grants and sponsorships. So. If you are an organization and you want to sponsor, let me know. The information will be in the description. And thank y'all so much and happy Black History Month.